Good morning and welcome to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Deftari. We are finally closing upon 2020. Finally, despite seeming like this year would never end, I think we all have some very strong feelings about how 2020 has been. But nonetheless, today we will do a year in review and talk about the issues that will matter most in the coming year. We will talk COVID, Iran, China, and more. To discuss all this, I'm extremely happy to call upon my good friend, Dr. Niall Gardner, the director of the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. And besides for being a leading global authority on Brexit, Niall previously served as a foreign policy aide to Margaret Thatcher. He has testified several times before Congress on foreign policy issues, frequently providing analysis on global events uh, for television networks, Fox News, Fox Business, CNN, Sky News, BBC, and he is a regular contributor to The Telegraph. Thank you so much for joining us, Niall. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Lisa. So, um, you know, we obviously have to start with this huge um, elephant in the room. Uh, it's very difficult to talk about 2020 without it just being about COVID, COVID, COVID from wall to wall. Uh, and I know that we want to get to other issues as well. There is this uh, Russian intellectual uh, who called the who said covid has had a larger uh impact than than a real world war um you know let's talk about that i mean what are the lasting effects what how will history look upon this year upon covid how it's affected people i mean what's your uh aerial uh opinion on this well that's that's a great question of course this has been an extraordinary uh year in many respects uh, a hugely unusual year. A very few predicted that we would be in the current uh, state that we are in with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic, the biggest pandemic uh, in uh, over 100 years. Uh, and I think that, you know, there are a few big sort of takeaways from the, you know, from the past, past year. I think, firstly, uh, I think that, you know, US leadership on the world stage really does matter. And we've seen that with regard to the development of two US-led uh, COVID vaccines. There's a third vaccine that's been developed by uh, AstraZeneca and Oxford University in the United Kingdom. And so the US and the UK have developed, uh, you know, the three leading vaccines that will frankly rescue the free world. So US and British leadership really does matter. American leadership matters. Uh, and Operation Warp Speed actually was a huge success. Uh, and and so let's not forget, you know, the American role in terms of turning the world around, defeating uh, COVID uh, in 2021. So uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about 2021. Uh, this has been an incredibly difficult year. I think next year is going to be, uh, you know, a far better year. Uh, I would also mention as well that, you know, this has been uh, a year in which as well, uh, you know, nation states, uh, national sovereignty really is front and center. So the the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been led by nation states. It's not been led by the United Nations, for example, which has been largely right. absent. Uh, it, it has been led by individual nation states like mm -hmm. the United States and the United Kingdom, for example. And I think thirdly as well, with regard to the, uh, the overall COVID situation, uh, it has demonstrated, uh, you know, once again, the complete lack of responsibility from China and China's whole role in terms of uh, initially covering up the uh, the outbreak of the, of the virus and allowing it then to spread to the rest of the world is an yeah. absolute disgrace. So yeah. China must be held to account. 
Absolutely. And we're going to get to that uh, New York Times expose uh, from just a few days ago that outlines their role in all of this. Um, interesting for that to come out only now, um, but we will get to that. I want to go back to your initial statement about COVID, about this being led by the United States. We also had um, an election here and the entire um, Democrat platform uh, was nothing but, you know, Donald Trump failed us on COVID. Uh, you know, how do you think that that narrative uh, affected us. You know, we obviously had a very different um, presidency with the Trump presidency. We had eight years of, you know, uh, apologetic. We don't want to be the leaders of the world under the Obama foreign policy. And then we had four years of a real, um, real offense uh, type, um, you know, president or or leader uh, led uh, foreign policy with Donald Trump. And then all of a sudden you have you know, this election, which really uh, put us to shame as Americans because of that narrative. How do you think that's going to take us into 2021 under um, a potential Biden presidency? Yeah, I think that, you know, firstly, um, you know, I think that President Trump, uh, his his biggest legacy with regard to COVID is the fact that the U.S. has developed two uh, world-beating vaccines. And so, uh, you know, that, that that I think is the most important issue. Every single country in the world has faced immense challenges with, with COVID. And of course, there are a lot of detractors of President Trump out there over his handling of the pandemic. But the, the reality is he put in place a plan to develop the vaccines that are going to turn around the world's economies in 2021, that are going to save huge numbers of lives, you know, tens of millions of lives, no doubt, in, in 2021. Uh, and you know, this is a this is a massive achievement. I mean, he you know he basically said that we're going to build these vaccines by the end of the year, and he achieved that. And that that is the single biggest achievement I think for the the Trump presidency on the on the COVID uh, front. Uh, and yet again, it's the United States leading on the world stage. Uh, and and yes, the United States has been hit hard by COVID, as has every single major country on the international stage. Every world leader has faced immense challenges. Uh, and, and a great deal of the criticism of President Trump uh, has been highly politically motivated, the same kind of criticism that uh, you know Boris Johnson has faced in the United Kingdom, for example, mm-hmm. and many other leaders have faced. So, uh, But at the end of the day, the US is riding to the rescue of the entire free world. That's a big achievement. Let's not forget that. And US leadership, US exceptionalism, and US uh, brilliance and innovation uh, really does matter on the world stage. Yeah, I want to move on to Europe, Um, obviously the UK and uh, the um, Europeans and how they dealt with COVID. Then I want to move uh, to the Middle East and we'll end up with China. I want to really get to each part. And I know that your expertise is in all of that. So I I really want to uh, focus in on a few key issues here. Um, Let's talk about COVID in in Europe and how, I mean, they were brutally hit and way before we we got it on the East Coast and then on the West Coast here in the United States. But, um, you know, how did that affect uh, Europe? And then, you know, my follow-up question will be, as we're hitting the expiration uh, date for the EU and uh, and Britain to to work out the details of Brexit, how has this all affected, um, you know, the the, the present and future uh, short term uh, in Europe? Yeah, very, very important question, sir, Lisa. And, and with regard to the impact of COVID in, in Europe, it has been uh, you know, an incredibly difficult uh, few months for, for the whole of Europe. Uh, and Europe has faced the same challenges that the United States uh, has faced. European leaders have faced similar criticisms that President Trump has faced on so many COVID-related 
issues. Uh, I think that um, you know the the impact of COVID actually in Europe has demonstrated actually that at the end of the day, it's nation states that are critically important in terms of responding to a uh, a global pandemic like this. So the European response to COVID was led by individual countries, Great Britain, for example, now of course outside of the European Union but also by by Germany, France, uh, individual European countries basically led the way and European leaders in nation states led the way in terms of the actual response. The European Union was a, was a bystander, basically, and the European Commission, the executive branch of the EU, played a very minimal role in terms of the COVID response. You saw borders being uh, basically re-implemented across, uh, across the European Union, border controls being right. put in place. Uh, and so sovereignty, self-determination, uh, really uh, was was sent center stage in terms of the COVID response in Europe, and mm-hmm. and the European Union I think was was shown to be uh, extremely ineffective in terms of any kind of COVID response. Now you also brought up the issue of the UK EU trade deal. Those negotiations are still taking place. Uh, there is uh, there is speculation that a deal is about to be uh, about to be struck. We don't have confirmation yet from Downing Street on this. The negotiations have been extremely difficult. And these negotiations are focused upon the future trading relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. And I have to say, the EU's approach towards these negotiations has been extremely mean-spirited throughout these last few months. They've treated these negotiations as some kind of punishment beating for Britain daring to leave the European Union, Mm -hmm. to send a warning message to other European countries that if they leave the EU, there'll be consequences. But the British uh, Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has stood his ground uh, and and the UK is not uh, making any uh, any concessions to the European Union, and and Brexit, of course, will be great for the British people. It'll be it'll be great for Europe as well. It'll be great for the United States also, and for the US UK special relationship. And I think that Britain will be a tremendous success story in the Brexit era. Yeah, definitely. Um, they're they're making it a very strong case for for the Britain to get out as fast as possible, right? Yeah. Um, next, I want to move on to. Um, probably one of my favorite foreign policy uh, achievements of 2020. I know you and I were both there September 15th on the White House lawn as we uh, witnessed uh, the signing of the Abraham Accords. Um, Real historic moment. And here's Donald Trump that day making a statement about those accords. We're here this afternoon to change the course of history. After decades of division and conflict, we mark the dawn of a new Middle East, Thanks to the great courage of the leaders of these three countries, we take a major stride toward a future in which people of all faiths and backgrounds live together in peace and prosperity. In a few moments, these visionary leaders will sign the first two peace deals between Israel and the Arab state in more than a quarter century. In Israel's entire history, there have previously been only two such agreements. Now we have achieved two in a single month, and there are more to follow. Yeah, and, and more to follow. I mean, this is tremendous. Um, I, I always say I, I can't emphasize enough how important this is to people who understand the history, uh, the politics of the region, the fact that this was an impossible get, uh, and yet the Trump administration figured out a real way to incentivize peace, not just a piece of paper, but a real deal that will bring about tourism and trade and the exchange of technology and patents and things like that. And it's already begun. We're seeing so much of that. And every time I post that, I have people um, commenting, well, why is this important? 
important to the United States? You know, why should we care uh, if President Trump did this? You know, and now where we have this COVID stimulus package, I know that there's a lot of countries that get these handouts from the United States. Many of those countries that are not deserving of those monthly allowance checks uh, that, you know, we, we just write out and we've just done that because it's traditionally what the U.S. does. But Israel is on that list. And a lot of people, um, you know, cite Israel. Why are we giving money to Israel? Israel being the one nation that arguably uh, we do have a relationship with. We give that aid in exchange for X, Y, and Z. Um, now, I know you, you cover this as well as many other things in the Middle East. Why is this significant? And more importantly, the broader issue, why is the U.S.-Israel relationship so important? And um, how, why, you know, why is it that, that this is the one relationship that Democrats, Republicans, it's a bipartisan issue that we cannot, um, you know, you, we can't afford to lose this relationship? Uh, absolutely. That's 100 uh, percent right. And uh, we were both there at the White House for the uh, historic signing of the Abraham Accords. Uh, and, you know, you cannot underestimate the significance of of what happened there. You had uh, Israel uh, signing an historic uh, agreement, basically, that is a real game changer for the future of the Middle East. And I think the, the Trump presidency has actually uh, accomplished more in terms of advancing peace in the Middle East than any U.S. administration many, many decades. Uh, and so uh, we cannot in any way, I think, underestimate the, the scale of the achievement there. And Israel, of course, is our most important ally in the Middle East. Uh, it's vitally important that the United States stands shoulder to shoulder with Israel. And the Abraham Accords uh, have significantly strengthened the, the long-term uh, prosperity and security uh, of Israel in the region. Uh, and we are now seeing uh, at last, actually, uh, many of the, the Arab nations in the region um, now developing closer ties with Israel. And, and, you know, a few years ago, this would have been deemed absolutely impossible. But this has been achieved, and, and largely thanks to uh, the, the leadership of President Trump and also uh, Benjamin Netanyahu as well. Uh, and uh, together with, uh, with many uh, leaders as well uh, in the region. And I think that, um, you know, this is a historic development. It has actually uh, been a series of events that has significantly sidelined and undermined Iran, the biggest menace and aggressor in the region. Uh, it has also uh, weakened the uh, the position of uh, Palestinian uh, terrorist organizations as well. Uh, and I think that this is, you know, uh, this is a scenario that significantly enhances the long-term safety and security of our closest friend and ally in the Middle East. That, that's a big achievement. That's a big deal. Uh, and we stand with the people of Israel. Uh, and the people of Israel stand with us as well. Uh, and we have no stro stronger and closer partner in the Middle East than, than the Israeli people. Uh, what do you foresee happening to the Abraham Accords uh, in the new administration? Well, that's that's a, that's a very important uh, question, and I hope that uh, you know the new administration will fully embrace the positive momentum uh, that has come forward over the course of the last few few years under the the Trump presidency. And the reality is that President Trump achieved what uh, President Obama could not, advancing forward the the prospects for peace uh, in the region. Uh, and I think that you know the new the new presidency has to embrace the the positive momentum here. They have to ensure that this legacy actually from the Trump administration uh, is is uh, secured and and advanced uh, forward. 
But I have to say that, uh, you know, Joe Biden's record as, as vice president uh, when he served alongside Barack Obama was not a very good one when it, when it came to uh, Middle East policy. And so, so I'm concerned about uh, the, the policy positions of, of uh, many of the officials as well around, uh, around Biden. Uh, and, you know, the Obama uh, White House was, was no, no friend of Israel, frankly. In no. fact, they treated the Israelis in an appalling fashion. Right. And so there has to be a reversal of that uh, with, a, with a Biden uh, presidency. And, uh, but, you know, Joe, Joe Biden actually, uh, you know, I have to say, has, uh, you know, has, has been very quiet on this particular issue. Uh, but he needs to reverse Right. The, the earlier stance of the of the Obama presidency, which was, mm-hmm. was absolutely appalling, frankly. Yeah, what he hasn't been quiet about, uh, which is scary, is getting back into the Iran nuclear deal. No. Uh, and that's the other side of that coin, right? Um, yeah. You know, him and his um, aides have been quite vocal uh, about getting back into the Iran deal. We have congressmen writing letters to get back into the deal with no preconditions, which is just asinine. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea what country would get back into a nuclear deal with, um, you know, a, a rogue nation that is that is, is no longer even hiding their nuclear um, activities and their, their progress on their weapons development. Um, how likely is this that we're going to get back into a nuclear deal and what will it look like for U.S. security? Yeah, a very key issue, I think, on the horizon for 2021, the issue of uh, the Iran nuclear deal, the future of that, and whether or not the United States is going to rejoin the deal. And as, as you point out, Joe Biden has been very vocal on this issue. He has not been very vocal on the Abraham Accords issue, but on the Iran issue, he has been very vocal. And Joe Biden's position is that the United States should rejoin the uh, JCPOA uh, agreement, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, this would be a uh, an absolute disaster, in my uh, in my opinion. Uh, this would be the height of folly. Uh, and to rejoin the JCPOA would send completely the wrong signal to the Iranian regime. And Iran is the world's biggest state sponsor of international terrorism. It is a regime that has threatened to wipe Israel off the map. It is a genocidal regime. It is clearly, as we know from Israeli intelligence information, uh, Iran is clearly intent upon building a nuclear weapons a program. Uh, and uh, the JCPOA, if it is resurrected, will simply allow Iran to, to, to build that weapons program after, uh, after a number of years with all the sunset provisions that are in place. It does nothing to address Iran's uh, missile capability or its conventional military capability. There are serious flaws in this, in this agreement. Uh, and uh, and now Joe Biden is saying the U.S. Uh, has to go back to this this deal, which would be a, a fatally flawed decision if he decides to go down that route. Uh, and I I do hope that uh, this can possibly be uh, be blocked by uh, by the Senate if um, if the Iran nuclear deal is put uh, right. forward to the Senate as as a treaty as it should be. And I'm sure the Senate would would veto it uh, very very swiftly. There is no there is no real support in Congress for the Iran nuclear deal. In fact, even even many Democrats, I think, are opposed to to the deal, which is why uh, the Obama administration did not put forward the JCPOA as a treaty for Senate ratification uh, several years ago. 
Right. Um, look, the evidence speaks against it. And it seems like since even since uh, the Obama era, where they did push this through, where, you know, many people were naive about about this and saying, look, let's normalize relations with the Iranian regime. They would look at the Iranian people and think, well, we're doing them a favor. Meanwhile, the reality on the ground has become more recognized, more it's covered by the media more. We're under, we're hearing voices of um, the people on the ground, whether it's in Iran or, or the region, right? We're seeing why the Abraham Accords were so successful because the people of the region have had a coming of age, the real Arab Spring, I call it, because they've come to realize that the future is not in extremism, but in modernity, in technology, in advancements. Uh, and when you see the people of Iran telling the United States, we don't, we, we want someone like Trump. There's such a support for Trump uh, among yeah. the people in Iran and people don't, don't know that. Um, we're also seeing it in the Arab world. We're also seeing it in France. Um, and, you know, you saw with Macron and when he said, we will not cease to publish cartoons. And that was just a nod uh, to free speech, to free press. And you saw protests and boycotts across the Arab world, across the, the Africa and, and, um, you know, in, in Pakistan, in uh, Kuwait, in Jordan, Morocco, Egypt, um, you know, it's 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 a bit of a wake up call. You know, when when Obama passed the uh, nuclear or, or when he got into or became signatory to uh, the JCPOA, there's a different there's a different feeling uh, globally. Now, I think there's a bit of an awakening towards extremism. I mean, what's your take on that? If you look at Europe, look at the Middle East, what has changed? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there has been a wake-up call in the region, actually, over the course of the of the last few years. And uh, you've seen strong U.S. leadership on the Iran front, which has united America's allies uh, within the Gulf states. And you now have this coalition that is standing shoulder to shoulder with the United States and confronting the Iranian uh, regime. And you have the UAE, uh, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, for example, working very closely together with, with the U.S. and confronting Iran, and that that really is a testament to strong, bold U.S. leadership uh, over the past four years, as opposed to the uh, era of of appeasement that you saw under uh, under Obama and Biden. Uh, and Joe Biden was a big part of, of Obama's foreign policy. Right. It was an integral part of the appeasement uh, mindset of the uh, the Obama presidency. And any return to that, I think, would be absolutely uh, devastating. You've also uh, mentioned as well the situation in France, and we've had a wave of terror attacks in France. We've had the beheading of several French citizens by uh, Islamist uh, terrorists. Uh, and Emmanuel Macron, to his credit on this on this issue, has taken a, a very strong stance in support of freedom of speech, in standing up to uh, Islamist uh, terror. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, you know, in, in Europe as well, you are seeing... Uh, some increasingly tough policies being taken by some European leaders in the face of uh, Islamist terror and ideology. And that, that, that's a very positive development. Do you, do you think there's a buyer's remorse in, in Europe uh, with regards to their very lax attitude on migrants, on immigration, on allowing uh, these groups not to assimilate uh, and then seeing this growth in extremism on their own soil? Yeah, I think certainly that uh, you know Europe is uh, facing the the consequences in many ways of uh, some lax policies in the past uh, and and a lack of willingness to deal with uh, the the rising Islamist uh, threat. Uh, you now have across Europe far tighter border controls. 
Uh, I do think that uh, you know European intelligence agencies are far more effective now in terms of tracking and and combating Islamist terrorists. But as we see in in France, I mean the threat is very very real. It's still out there, uh, and uh, and I think as well that uh, you know the open borders policy that uh, Angela Merkel implemented in Germany, allowing in over a million. Uh, refugees from uh, countries such as Syria, for example, Afghanistan and other uh, other sort of war zones. That was a very, very dangerous uh, policy. And that, I think, uh, has a, a long-term damaging impact upon European uh, security. Right. And society, we can see that it's it's definitely uh, changed the landscape over there. Um, yeah. Speaking of extremism, you know, you, you look at Europe and their ex- experience right now in, in dealing with this reality. Um, Yet you also see Europe um, really straddling um, the the idea of getting back into you know a relationship with Iran or calling them out on it. Every day you see a different story. Um, you know, at the at the on the one hand, Europeans call out you know uh, the the Iranian regime's behavior on um, you know on on going forward with their um, you know the satellite images came out last week that they're going forward and building these nuclear plants that they're enriching uranium um, obviously the, the human rights uh, you know the horrific, horrific stories that come out aren't even brought to the forefront, but we'll leave that to the side. But they call them out on the one hand, and on the other hand, they just don't have what it takes to say, "Look, we're out." You know, do what Donald Trump did and yeah. call them out, and you know, step back. You, you can't normalize relations with a terrorist regime. Why are we yeah. not seeing that from Europe? Yeah, I think that uh, you know, with regard to to Europe. Um, there is this broader appeasement mentality that we also saw in the U.S. under Obama. Uh, and you have uh, many European governments, especially the, the French and the German governments, as well as the European Union as a whole, uh, appeasing the uh, the Iranian regime on, on many fronts. And so while there is criticism of Iran's uh, absolutely atrocious human rights record, at the same time, many European countries want to see the lifting of uh, of of U.S. Uh, and international sanctions against Iran, there's a big business element uh, related to this, and mm-hmm. there's a large number of German companies, for example, that do business with uh, with Iran. Trade between Germany and Iran has been uh, very significant o- over the course of the last uh, decade, and so uh, many uh, European officials would like to see the lifting of sanctions. They they don't like to see the U.S. sanctions in place. Uh, and there are there are significant business and trade interests at stake for for Europe, which unfortunately has impacted the overall sort of political uh, policy. I think uh, the, the British government has been more hard line on Iran than a lot of continental European governments because, sure. uh, in in part, um, in part because the UK has very little in the way of business interests in Iran, but also the UK traditionally takes a much more assertive stance on the international stage. Uh, but uh, it would be an absolutely terrible combination to have, uh, you know, European leaders working together with a with a Biden presidency to lift sanctions against Iran. That would right. be uh, an immensely self-defeating, damaging and dangerous uh, policy. Yes, absolutely. And speaking of dangerous, I want to get to um, the next foreign policy uh crisis um, of 2020 and will definitely carry us into 2021. Um, And this is beautifully said by our good friend, Nikki Haley. Let's take a listen. Wake up, America. I mean, this is nothing small. China has wanted to dominate the world for a long time. They want to bring down America. 
And they almost did that with the coronavirus. What we have to do is understand we've got to quit talking about China and we've got to do something about China. They are trying to go and spy on our satellites. They're trying to build up their military. They're the biggest human rights abuser. They're trying to control communication. They're getting involved in elections. We have to stop talking about China and we have to start doing something about it. And that's not happening. Holding China accountable. I mean, across the board, we can talk about COVID. We can talk about spies that are sent here. We can talk about the students that are here. Uh, we could talk about they're stealing our technology, our patents, our intellectual property um, across the board. I mean, what do we do about China? Well, perfectly uh, said by by Nikki Haley. And uh, Ambassador Haley, I think, is, is the closest we have in the United States to a, to a Margaret Thatcher today. And she Absolutely. has a very clear-eyed vision uh, for U.S. leadership in the world, uh, and her statements on, on China are absolutely uh, spot on there. We have to view China not as a potential partner for the United States, as many on the left do. We have to view China as an adversary. China is the enemy of the free world, uh, and China's Communist Party uh, devotes a great amount of its time to trying to undermine the United States and, and the free world. And we have to combat uh, China's threat, its influence on every single uh, front, as Ambassador Haley uh, pointed out so eloquently. Uh, and we have to really have a complete 360-degree uh, strategy for, for dealing with, uh, with China as an adversary. And uh, unfortunately, I think that uh, under some previous U.S. administrations, especially the, um, the Obama presidency, uh, you saw the United States... Uh, almost sleepwalking uh, in its policy uh, with regard to China. And China was making tremendous ground on the international stage at America's expense. I think with President Trump, uh, for the first time, you had a US presidency that was willing to stand up in many decades to, uh, to the Chinese uh, threat. Yeah. Uh, and and China, is, China has you know, tremendous superpower ambitions. It wants to displace the United States as the world's dominant power. We cannot allow that to happen. US leadership matters. And only the United States can lead lead the world. Uh, and we have to confront the enemies of freedom. And China is top of that list. Right. Uh, and we have to be prepared to, to stand up uh, to China on every single, uh, every single front. We have to be strong in our determination, robust in our resolve. And we cannot in any way make concessions to Beijing. Yeah, we haven't heard any strong comments come out of the Biden administration on what they will do um, regarding the, the China threat. I know when uh, we were looking at uh, President Trump, who was then, I don't even think he was candidate Trump. He was just a New Yorker, a businessman who would often take some media hits and he would go on and say, we have to curb China. We have to we have to stop them from taking advantage of us um, economically. I mean, taking our jobs, our business, uh, production, manufacturing, export, etc., and bring those jobs back home. And this was, again, before he was even a candidate. So we know where he stood. It was really for the for, for making America um, stronger and financially and otherwise. Um, and now we look at China as a, a security uh, threat. What will it look like? Um, how do you potentially see this under a Biden administration? Well, I have to say, I, I don't have a lot of faith in, in Joe Biden's ability to stand up to China because he hasn't demonstrated an ounce of, of uh, determination or strength in standing up to China before. Uh, and, you know, Joe, Joe Biden, as far as I can see, doesn't appear to have any policy at the moment for dealing with 
uh, with with China. And this is this is very very dangerous for for the free world if if the United States is not willing to to lead. And the Obama era was a period of U.S. retreat, a surrender. Uh, and the United States kowtowed to, to China at, at every opportunity. We, we cannot allow that to happen for a, for a second time. If that is going to be the approach of a, of a Biden presidency, it will be uh, another period of, of U.S. Uh, decline, as we saw on, under Obama. And that would, be, that would be tragic, because if the U.S. is not willing to stand up to China, then no one will on the international stage. The world looks to the United States for, for leadership. Uh, and... I, if the U.S. is willing to uh, be prepared to, to, you know, to stand up China on every on every single front, including, for example, the critically important uh, area of standing up to uh, uh, Chinese companies such as Huawei, for example, and you now see, for example, that the British government, several European governments, actually, with U.S. support, reversing course on the Huawei front, and Huawei, as China's biggest technology company, poses a major national security threat to the US and to its allies. Right. We've got to see that momentum continuing across the Atlantic where, where governments are prepared to, uh, to fight back against a Chinese influence. Uh, and you know, we have to see US leadership on that, on that front. Otherwise, uh, the, the, the Chinese are, are going to really take advantage of any sign of, of, uh, of weakness on, on the American side or the European side as well. Right. And I know that um, a lot of our enemies were hoping for um, a Biden presidency over a Trump re-election. Uh, Iran and North Korea, uh, China, um, all are wanting, uh, you know, a Biden presidency to hopefully get a weaker man uh, in, in the White House and to carry on um, with their activities. You know, I think... Um, it's uh, worthwhile to speak about uh, the role of the media in 2020, which was um, very, very front and center. Uh, you usually don't see the, the, the media taking such um, a, a, a strong position, um, being so one-sided. Social media platforms and tech platforms censoring uh, vital information uh, in favor of one candidate over the other, uh, censoring all sorts of um, you know speech and, and talking about whether it's the election or talking about fraud or talking about anything um, having to do with Hunter Biden's uh, laptop. Um, more specifically, the New York Times came out with a report just a few days ago talking about the uh, role China played in really controlling the narrative that came out about COVID. So, you know, my my first question was, aren't people seeing this and 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 really feeling like we are being betrayed um, by the media that is responsible to to deliver the truth when they have it um, and to to really tell us what's going on rather than manipulating um, the facts in order to get their preferred candidate into the White House. And in this case, they they really um, manipulated what what we knew about um, China, their what they knew about COVID, how they handled COVID in the very beginning. Um, you know, what does this tell us about the media, their role, and will it change in in, in 2021? Yeah, those those great questions, very important questions, because I think that uh, millions of Americans have lost faith actually in the in the mainstream media here, uh, and and I think that uh, you know the U.S. media has become uh, increasingly and overwhelmingly uh, politicized, of course backing one side of the political aisle in this in this this case, 
And uh, the US media often fails to hold uh, politicians to account if they're on the liberal side. And I think there's a big distinction between uh, the US media and say, for example, the, the British media. Uh, and, you know, of course, there is there's criticism, for example, of, of you know, the, the BBC and some elements of the British media. But the reality is in the UK overall, the press holds politicians to account. It doesn't matter what party they are, what government is in power. The, the, the British uh, you know, press is very old fashioned in the sense that it it likes to uh, ask real legitimate questions uh, and likes to hold all politicians to to account. Uh, in terms of public accountability. You don't see that, frankly, in the United States from many uh, media publications. You see an overwhelming liberal political bias in the media. You saw that throughout the election uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. And you also, frankly, see the suppression of, as well of, of, of free speech in some in some quarters of the media uh, as, as well, for all sorts of reasons, uh, ranging from uh, po- political correctness to political bias and a refusal to cover certain big stories that would be massive stories in, in other in other countries if uh, you know for their for their own elections uh, and i think that um rightly so i think that many americans have lost faith in the the media setup in in the united states with with many of the the big uh you know broadcasters overwhelmingly liberal dominated uh broadcasters uh and you know we need to have a media in the united states that actually reports the news uh, that actually asks real questions to to real politicians, uh, and is also uh, willing as well to uh, to fully investigate, for example, China's role in the in the COVID uh, you know pandemic. And we're now seeing stories in the New York Times appearing after the election. Funnily enough, they did not appear uh, before the election. Uh, and uh, you know we we need to see some real investigative uh, you know journalism uh, be, being done and some real professionalism. Uh, coming from some quarters of the media who have have abandoned, I, I think, you know, their their traditional uh, role in favor of of sort of political electioneering. Yeah, I um, I, I hope that 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 changes and can go back to really, um, you know, relying on an ethical media, um, you know, and that really goes back to universities and and journalism programs and newsrooms uh, to hold their journalists uh, really accountable. Uh, for for what they put out, um, no, I, I I can't I can't let you go by. Uh, I have two two questions to to end with. One is, what do you think was the best news story of of twenty twenty? Um, and next, uh, I'd like you to answer, what's your biggest? Um, what do you think will be the biggest foreign policy story or the most important issue going forward into twenty twenty one? Yeah, two uh, two wonderful questions there. On the, on the first question, I think, you know, the biggest positive event, uh, in, in my view, was was Brexit, actually, which took place at the end of January. I was there in London, actually, for that. And, you know, Brexit is is so hugely important, not only for Britain, but for the world as a whole, because Brexit is all about sovereignty and self-determination. All of the values, principles of the American people have, have cherished so so dearly for hundreds, hundreds of years. And, and I think that Brexit is a very big game changer. You have the world's fifth biggest uh, economy, actually, exiting uh, the European Union. And the UK is a big player on the world stage. And this will have massive implications for the future of, of Europe, actually. Uh, so uh, so my response uh, to your question is that I, I think that Brexit is the single biggest positive event of 2020. And we're seeing a full Brexit with Britain leaving the, the 
UK, uh, sorry, the EU Single Market and Customs Union on December 31st. So that's the completion of Brexit at the end of this year. With regard to the second question, I think the uh, the biggest uh, foreign policy issue, certainly of the, of the first part of 2021, is going to be uh, Iran, actually. I and mean, I, I think that uh, with the momentum coming from uh, Biden and his team to rejoin the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, that, that that is an incredibly dangerous uh, move forward. Uh, and I think that the focus on Iran is going to dominate the first uh, few few months of of 2021. And I think then also uh, a focus will shift increasingly onto, onto China as well. But I think Iran is going to be the big the big story of of the first few months of 2021. And the United States has a choice to either lead on the world stage, stand up to our adversaries, confront the enemies of freedom. Or, or give in and and surrender through policies of appeasement, and you know any return to the Obama era of foreign policy would be an absolute disaster for the United States. We cannot go down that route. No, we cannot. And it looks like it's something they want to take care of on inauguration day to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. They're very enthusiastic, which makes you more suspect about the whole thing. Thank you so much, Nal Gardner, for your expertise. Goodness to you and your family. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Lisa. And thank you all for tuning in. I wish you and your families a merry, merry Christmas. Uh, if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. You can also catch us on iTunes and Spotify and Pandora. And to subscribe for our daily top 10, go to foreigndesknews.com. Thank you all. See you again very soon.